most of the time we think of investing solely in the context of growth. Buy a stock and it goes up, you win. But if that's the only focus, you could be missing out on a huge piece of the equation. What about the cash flow that you can get from a whole host of unique asset classes? It's called income investing, and it can help turn your investments into a steady, cash-producing machine. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money, and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. You may have heard me talk about income investing. And it's a topic that I bring up a lot on Retire Sooner because it's kind of the core of my entire investment life. It's the core of my investment philosophy and has been for for as long as I can remember. And I've been in the investment business for about 25 years now. And it, it is the actual core of any sort of financial plan because when you're meeting with families, particularly in today's world, and I'm recording this podcast kind of in the middle of the normal course of, of business. And I, I had a family today that I've worked with for a very long time and they're worried about, they're worried about inflation and they're worried about all the money that the government spent. And none of that's a secret. It's very much out in the open. You can go online and find the United States debt clock in about a nanosecond. And it shows that we have about $28 trillion in debt. And Again, I don't know. I've used different analogies to that. And my kids always ask me about this. Like, how much is a trillion dollars? Well, you could take a, a dollar bill and stack it all the way up to the moon and back 17 times. And that's kind of what a trillion dollars is. And the increase in the money supply in the U.S. understandably makes each additional dollar in the U.S. a little bit less valuable. So we have to worry about the dollars we use becoming less valuable over time and our purchasing power getting eroded. And of course, that is the story of inflation. And that's exactly what Kathy and Charles asked me today. They said, Wes, all of this money, aren't we going to get inflation? What is our, how do we combat that? And if you look at our retirement timeline, it looks like we're going to be fine. But what if prices just keep going up and up and up? Well, the answer in my book is through income investing, which is what today's topic is all about. There's very few antidotes to inflation. They are real estate. These are properties that can can inflate over time. And then there's income investing, which is what I want to talk about today. If it's on the mind of Kathy and Charles, it's on all of our minds. And it's something I want to address today. They also, by the way, love to talk about SEC football. So we're, by the way, I'm in the South and our home base is Atlanta, and we just so happen to have the number one football team in the country, the Georgia Bulldogs. And it's been a long time coming. I can't remember the last time the Bulldogs were number one in the country, but it's an exciting time to be in Atlanta. In fact, the radio station that I've worked at for 15 years as well is the home of the dogs. In fact, on Sunday mornings, Money Matters actually gets shortened during Georgia football season because they have some they have a show called 
the Bulldog Brunch. And I didn't grow up with football at all. I didn't grow up with football. My dad felt like we should be working out in the, the fields on Saturdays and not watching college football. So I didn't really watch college football until I actually went to college. My wife, on the other hand, and I know I'm going off track here, but I'll talk about football for a second. My wife, on the other hand, is, is from Michigan, and, and my father-in-law, Big Ron, lives right next to the University of Michigan Stadium in Ann Arbor, and he lives and breathes college football. And it just so happens that even though here we are in the Southeast with University of Georgia and Clemson and Alabama, these powerhouse teams, most of the country, depending on where you are, looks down at the South and says, you guys get all the credit, you're overrated. And my wife, who is from Michigan, is a Big Ten fan. The Big Ten are the the teams like University of Michigan, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Illinois, Penn State. And even though the dogs are number one in the nation right now, Lynn is incensed that the Big Ten doesn't get the credit it deserves because now there's five teams in the top 10 that are from the Big Ten and everybody still just talks about Georgia football. So we call her Coach Moss because, as you maybe heard me talk about a little bit, and retired sooner. I've got four kids, 14 and younger, the two middle boy, and they're all boys, and the two middle ones play football. And it's tackle football. So you can, maybe you judge me. I can't believe you allow your children to play tackle football. Well, Lynn is perhaps the most cautious parent when it comes to safety because she was a pediatric nurse for over a decade. And it's something we think about and talk about all the time. And despite her caution, she is totally okay with tackle football. Now, the good news when it comes to tackle football, when when kids are young and they're kind of, let's say, still little, under 150 pounds, there's just not a huge amount of impact when they're playing tackle football. So you really don't see kids get hurt all that much. Yes, you see some fingers get stuck in helmets and they're running and some sprained ankles, but Let's call it peewee football, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade football, which is the world that I'm living in right now. Two practices per night, always at totally different times, way far away from my house, usually in the middle of rush hour traffic. And still, as a dad, I look at it and I say, yeah, it's pretty safe. In fact, just a little while ago, not that long ago, as we started this fall football season for Jake, my nine-year-old, who's in fourth grade who had his football uniform on a week before we ever even had football practice. And he said, Dad, I have been waiting my entire life to play tackle football. I was like, Jake, look, you're nine. You haven't been waiting that long. He's like, I know, but it's been my entire life. So I was talking to my sister, who's also, she's a a PA, a physician's assistant in, in the Philadelphia area. I remember talking to Lily, Aunt Lily, going to Jake's first game. And she goes, are you ever worried about the boys getting hurt? Like, aren't you worried about them getting injured or concussions or anything when it comes to football? And I said, no, 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 no. At this age, they don't really get hurt. They they don't get concussions or too little for that. There's not enough physics or inertia for them to really get hurt. In fact, one of the dads on Jake's team was a safety for Stanford. And went all the way through. And he said, and he, and he would tell me, and he's and he's told me before, oh, the kids don't really get hurt. Now, Jake, by the way, out of my four sons, is the largest moss boy. He is kind of built for football. I've got, again, four kids are all totally different. 
Sam is tiny and looks like he'll always be kind of thin and tiny. Jake looks like a football player. And my answer to Aunt Lily about the kids getting hurt or Jake getting hurt playing football, I said, no, I'm not worried about Jake getting hurt at all. I'm like, I'm worried about him hurting other kids, one and two. The kids really don't get hurt. So, of course, the very first game, first play of the second half, Jake goes down, hits the back of his head really hard, and comes out of the game with a concussion. One of the dads on the team is a doctor, checked him out. He said, he might have a mild concussion. If he doesn't feel good, take him to the doctor the next day, which we did. And, of course, Jake has a concussion. Well, it turns out that in little kid football, again, according to the dad who played at Stanford, the only real way to get a concussion at this age is to hit the back of your head, not head to head. Because there's just so much padding in these new fortress-like helmets with air and just amazingly cushioned. But evidently, if you fall and hit the back of your head really hard, you can get a concussion from kind of the back of your head. And that's what happened to Jake. The coaches were great about it. He didn't play for two full weeks. And then they eased him back in over the third week. So he kind of played a little bit. And then he's been back now full time for a couple of weeks. And he, and he, feels, and he feels great. So fortunately, Jake is totally back to normal, back playing football again. But after that incident, Coach Moss, my wife, did start to say, you know, if this keeps happening, these boys are not playing football. And still, nobody respects the Big Ten because they're the best conference in college football. So I hope you're enjoying the heart of college football season because I can, I can tell you, I sure am. And the Moss boys are, too. Now, let's go back to income investing. Now, before I describe what income investing is all about, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is no perfect or right way for anybody to invest. There are so many different ways to approach investing. You can be a cryptocurrency investor. Again, not, not my speed, but it's worked for millions of people. You can be a bond investor because you don't like the risk of the stock market and you like the security of steady interest and then maturity schedules when it comes to bonds. You can be a all growth oriented, no dividend whatsoever stock investor because these are the companies that are growing the fastest. And if I need money in the future, I'll just sell a chunk of the companies that have been growing. There's small cap investing, sector investing, global macro investing, international, small cap, international value investing, merger arbitrage strategies, long short. The list is almost endless of different styles around how you feel comfortable investing. And many of them work really well over time. So to approach investing in this way from an income producing perspective is not the only way. It's the way I see investing, which for as much as we talk about the science of investing and the numbers and the math, there's also an art to investing. And perhaps that side of the art, which again, we've talked about here on Retire Sooner, is the emotional side of making sure that you feel comfortable with how you're approaching the investment part of your retirement planning. So that's my first caveat here is that just because I love this way of investing, this is how we do it, doesn't mean it's the only way to skin the cap. By the way, Mallory just gave me two thumbs down because I said that. But, but it is. There are a lot of great ways to approach this. I want to explain today why I like income investing and how 
if you're thinking about being an income investor, how you really approach this. So the big picture here is is thinking around thinking of the think of the investment pie chart that is your 401k or your investment account, and think about every single sliver or piece of that pie having some sort of asset, whether it's a stock or a bond or the real estate sector or energy pipeline companies or closed-end funds or a variety of different fixed income instruments, all of them having some residual income that continues to come in on a predictable basis into the overall pie. That could mean dividends that come from stocks, interest that comes from a variety of bonds, and then distributions that come from all these other areas, like publicly traded real estate, energy pipeline companies, closed-end funds. And if you put all that together, you have this combination of a variety of different cash flows. In addition to that, the assets that you're holding in that pie chart should also grow over time. So the formula that we're all after here is total return. And total return, that formula is pretty simple. TR, total return, equals growth plus income. The growth piece is really about appreciation. This is a tough one to control because to some extent, we're at the mercy of the tide of the market. If markets are cratering across the board, it's difficult to get appreciation, at least in that given period of time. Over time, though, again, we believe that even though markets do fall and do correct, they eventually come back and make new highs, provided we're invested in a variety of companies that are continuing to expand and grow. But the important piece to remember about the growth piece of that total return equation, it's not overly reliable in the short or even the intermediate term. Again, long-term, yes, we should get growth from markets and, and good companies. But in any given week, month, year, overall market returns are impacted by all of these outside variables, politics, pandemics, elections, world events, natural disasters, and the list is almost endless. However, the income piece of the equation, and this is why income investing can check several of these boxes, both the science or the math of investing and the art, which is making sure you feel comfortable with it, is that income should be highly predictable. Not perfectly predictable, but if you have a grouping of 10 or 20 or 30 different ETFs or bonds or companies, then collectively, the dividends that get produced and the interest that gets produced and the distributions that get produced should be very reliable in any given month, quarter, or year. Long before you're retired, and you may be thinking, well, I'm only 20 or 30, I don't need income right now. But just because you don't need the income right now doesn't mean your portfolio doesn't need the income. Because if you have this steady faucet of cash flow coming back into your overall portfolio, and you don't need to spend it like you would if you were actually in retirement, you get to reinvest it. And reinvesting those dividends and all that income actually turbocharges your overall returns over time. Then when you actually do stop completely working, which again, here on the Retire Sooner podcast is on your mind, then those same Dividends and interest and distributions, all that cash flow that was being reinvested and reinvested when you were younger and accumulating now becomes a steady paycheck when you're no longer working. So I like 
income investing in both of the phases of our investment life, the accumulation phase and the distribution phase. Now, let's talk about the steadiness of that income. And we'll go back to, I think the last two years has been an amazingly good test. We went from a robust economy to a pandemic that shut down the United States and the global economy for many months. And here we are in the fall of 2021, and the world still hasn't healed completely. We still have massive supply chain shortages. We still have an undersupply of homes. We have a massive labor shortage creating the most unique job market imbalance that we've seen almost in history. And despite all of that, all of that chaos, portfolio income through income investing stayed very steady. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's even higher today than before the pandemic hit. So here we are in 2021, and let's talk about stocks for a minute. The aggregate amount of dividends paid out of the S&P 500, just as a proxy here, in 2021 is on pace for a record year. The highest dollar amount of dividends paid by the S&P 500 in the history of the world. During the first three quarters of 2021, S&P 500 companies have paid out $377 billion, billion with a B. Now, the jury still isn't out, but we're only $108 billion shy of the 2019 record. Fourth quarter is usually the biggest quarter for dividends. So if we clock in at $110 billion in dividend payouts in the fourth quarter, which I, I think is probably an understatement, we'd be at almost $490 billion for the year 2021. Half a trillion dollars in dividends just from the S&P 500 paid out to shareholders. I have a chart here that shows annual dividends paid out by the S&P 500 that goes back to 2011. We saw an aggregate dividend increase every single year until the pandemic hit. Back in 2011, clocking it, $240 billion paid out. Fast forward five years, 2016, then we were at $397 billion for the year. Fast forward to 2019, pre-pandemic, S&P 500 paid out $485 billion in dividends. Then wham, 2020 hit, the world shut down. What were the dividend payouts relative to the year prior? Well, they dropped a whopping one half of 1%. So despite COVID and the world and the economy shutting down for a big portion of the year, S&P 500 companies were still able to pay out 99.5% of the dividends they did the year prior. And here we are the year 2021, and we're likely to exceed where we were pre-pandemic 2019, getting close to $500 billion, that's a half a trillion dollars, produced and paid out in actual cash, not physical bills, but actual cash dividends that hit your brokerage account or 401k plan or mutual fund that you might own, that can either be spent by you or reinvested. Now, income investing is different than pure growth investing. If we're just growth, 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 that strategy focuses on buying shares of companies that devote every single bit of all their resources and their expansion, every bit of their resources to expansion at all costs. They're not interested in their profits as much as they are growth. 
So they may make a dollar per share and they want to reinvest the entire thing back into even faster growth. Dividends are going to come from typically slightly more or much more mature companies that are in maybe a slightly slower growth phase that are focusing on maximizing their profits. And dividends are a way for them to share those profits with investors. If you're a growth, growth investor, and again, this is one of these other strategies that can very much work well over time, the equation of the TR or total return just equals G. It's not a G plus I because there's no income. And in order to generate income or have money to actually spend, growth investors have to eventually sell shares in order to convert it to cash to pay the bills. Income investing approaches the market or investing from a different perspective. Stock dividends, bond interest, and then cold, hard cash. In fact, let's try to simplify income investing in general. And in some cases, I'll actually call this multi-asset class income investing, meaning that we've got lots of different asset classes, but each one of those asset classes is responsible for pulling some of their weight when it comes to producing income. And I think the simplest way to think about this is through visualizing income investing in four very separate buckets that all work together. Here are the buckets. Growth bucket, income bucket, alternative bucket, and cash bucket. And these are the four that work together to accomplish that equation that we're all after. Total return equals growth plus income. So let's start with the growth bucket. And we talk a lot about this one here on Retire Sooner because I think this is perhaps the most widely held and understood part of income investing and also takes up the majority typically of your overall investment pie. Now, this is going to be different for everyone, but if we're going by some of the really important parameters for, let's say, making the 4% plus rule work, which is an enormously important piece of the retirement timeline planning when you get to retirement, it calls for anywhere from at least 50% to 75% in stocks. So for most investors, not all, that's the range that we'd be looking for. If you're younger and still just in accumulation phase, you can certainly be much higher than that, 70, 80, 90, or 100% in equities. But as an income investor, this is going to be a piece of the overall pie, not the entire piece, not the entire pie. Now, we just mentioned growth, growth companies that don't have any interest in paying dividends. So what are these dividend-paying sectors? What do they look like? Well, there's five categories where you see a tremendous amount of focus on paying out dividends. It's the healthcare sector, utilities, probably most well-known for their dividends, telecommunications, financials, meaning banks and insurance companies, and then consumer staple companies. What's really changed over my 25-year career is that technology companies 20-some years ago were still so new that they were in that hyper-growth mode and they weren't as mature and none of them paid any dividends or it was very rare to get a dividend out of a technology company. However, in the world that we live in today, because technology companies are so essential to our economy, they've become mature and we see some technology companies actually paying out huge amounts in dividends to shareholders. So it's not just a world where utilities and healthcare and banks pay out dividends. Today, that list includes technology companies as well. 
how much do these companies typically pay out? Well, to be considered, at least in my book, a dividend-paying stock, it needs to be in the 2 to 5% range. If you would have asked me that five years ago, I would have said 3 to 6% range. But because interest rates are so low, it's brought down the overall yield for almost all assets. So I'm a little bit more forgiving on calling a stock a dividend stock when the 10-year treasury yield is still very close to an all-time historic low. In fact, we're going to get to that in a minute. I want to talk about the number of individual companies that actually pay more just in dividend yield than the 10-year government treasury. Now, this growth bucket can also include some sectors that may not be paying a ton out in dividends, particularly if you're younger and you're still accumulation and you really don't need income and you maybe have a higher risk tolerance and you don't necessarily need a steady stream of income to give you peace of mind then that growth bucket, even though I'd like to see mostly that full of dividend-paying companies, can of course hold some companies that are super fast-growing and are reinvesting all their profits to grow even faster and at present still aren't paying a dividend just yet. Think of the growth bucket as your overall percentage that are allocated to stocks. Next up, the income bucket, also known as the bond bucket. When I say bonds, I mean a variety of bonds, various bonds, because there's all types. In fact, the bond market and the amount of bonds outstanding actually far exceeds the stock market. It just gets a lot less press. But within the bond market, we have treasury bonds, municipal bonds, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, international bonds, and floating rate bonds. And they range from ultra safe, like a U.S. Treasury bond, as far as the credit or ability to continue to pay interest and then mature, to very risky bonds called high yield bonds. And high yield bonds is kind of a newer name, really just a rebranding campaign from what used to be called junk bonds. High yield sounds better than junk. And of course, those yields vary accordingly. In fact, on Money Matters, I remember many years ago, I used to do a yield ladder. And I used to talk about, in fact, I'll talk about it now, the different yields as we move up rungs of the ladder. And it used to be 4% at the bottom rung, all the way up to 8 or 9% for the junk bond or high yield rung. I think of that ladder today, and I immediately picture Chevy Chase in Christmas vacation, hanging up his Christmas lights, not paying attention, and immediately slides down 10 rungs of the ladder immediately. That's what the yield ladder looks like today. Because what used to be four at the bottom rung up to nine is now more like one on the bottom rung or almost zero at the bottom rung up to about five. It's a very different bond world today than we lived in five and 10 years ago. And with those different levels of interest rate per year, treasury bond paying, 1% 1% a year, corporate bond paying 2 or 3% a year, junk bond paying 4 to 6% per year. We have varying degrees of risk. Just like the lower your credit score is, the higher your interest rate is on your credit card. Same thing for companies. So a company with a rough balance sheet that's borrowed so much money that everything has to go really right for them to be able to pay the interest on their debt. And then when it comes due, actually pay the full amount or the full maturity amount of that debt. 
in order for investors to even take on that risk, they've got to be compensated more, hence the high yield. Maybe just a quick refresher on bonds. Bonds are just IOUs from a company or government. A soda company wants to build a new soda pop plant, and it's going to cost them $10 million to do so. So they issue $10 million worth of bonds. Investors buy that $10 million worth of bonds. They say, we're going to pay you back the full amount in five years. That's the maturity of the term on the bond. We're going to give you 5% per year. And the soda company gets the $10 million today, and investors get paid their 5% every single year for five years. And at the end of the term, they get their full principal back. Again, an IOU from a company or a municipal bond that would come from a local government or a government bond that would come from the U.S. government or some other country. And the way the yield ladder works today, treasuries are at the bottom. As we speak, the 10-year treasury yield is around 1.5%. The one to three-year treasury yield is well below 1%. Moving up on the ladder, corporate bonds are in the 2 to 3% range. That's interest per year. And the junk bonds are in the 4 5 and 6% range, depending on the credit of a given company. Again, lower credit, higher interest rate per year. So that's what the yield ladder looks like today. That's what the income bucket looks like today. We've talked about here on Retire Sooner how to rethink that portion of your portfolio. Episode 55, Rethinking Your Balanced Portfolio Allocation. If you haven't listened to that, we spend a lot of time talking about the interest rate environment and what to do with bonds. Next up on the docket, the alternative bucket. This is where we, we see assets that aren't necessarily stocks or bonds. They're somewhere in between. A couple examples, real estate investment trusts or REITs. Those are publicly traded real estate companies. They probably own REITs, might own buildings or data centers, and they pass through their client's rent to you as a shareholder. Master Limited Partnerships, or MLPs, these are typically energy pipeline companies that charge a certain amount to move fossil fuels through their pipes. They pass a portion of the toll that they collect or that income onto shareholders as distributions. Preferred stocks, these are long-term, almost perpetual debt instruments that get issued by companies like banks and utility companies. Closed-end funds, another category, which are baskets of really either stocks or bonds that can also use leverage to increase the amount that they pay out to shareholders. And again, these are called distributions, not dividends. Most of the categories in this alternative bucket are closer to the risk of stocks rather than bonds. So we expect higher yields from this group. And you can actually use this bucket as almost a portfolio yield booster because this alternative investment group typically ranges from the 3% per year income range all the way up to 8 or even 9%. Again, depending on the risk. If you're younger and you don't need any actual income at all, I can see you being lighter on this particular bucket. When you get into retirement and you really need current income, this is perhaps an area to expand on. Now we'll go to perhaps the most boring bucket of all, and that's the cash bucket. Really, this is just your emergency fund. And we want to have 
at least six months of living expenses here stashed away in this bucket, which would just come in the form of money market or CDs or just good old fashioned cash savings account. Now, this category is not about risk. This is about absolute accessibility, liquidity. You can get to it immediately. And because of that, we don't get compensated all that well here. Now, you can get 1% yield on a CD and 1% in a bank, but the larger your sums of money, the less willing banks, which is almost counterintuitive, are willing to give up a bunch of interest because they're not getting paid much in this low interest rate environment from the Federal Reserve. Again, all of this could change over the coming years is if interest rates start to go back up, we'll start to see 1% and 2 and 3% money markets very likely. But we're just a long way from that today. Now, remember, when I refer to the annual yield for each one of these buckets, I'm talking about the annual amount of cash flow that you receive from any one of these given assets in a particular bucket. Your total return, of course, will be impacted by the G portion or the price fluctuations, the growth of the underlying holdings in each bucket. Now, one other way I would look at both the cash bucket, the boring bucket that we just talked about, and the income bucket, which is a variety of bonds. And again, in the world that we live in today, I'm a big believer in owning shorter term bonds because bond prices and interest rates move inversely. So if we do see a rise in interest rates, like we talked about in episode 55, we could see longer term bonds lose a ton of value. So we want to be have shorter term bonds in that income bucket. But I'm also a big believer when we're doing and thinking about our investment planning, particularly as we get closer to retirement, is that the cash plus the income bucket is what I consider dry powder, meaning that we own it for stability, we own it for peace of mind, and a little bit of interest. And a little bit of counter to when the equity markets go down, meaning the growth bucket will probably get hit, and the alternative bucket will probably get hit. The cash and the income bucket are there for security. They're also there for something I refer to as dry powder. And this was really helpful as we went through the pandemic. If you have a portion of your overall investments in these categories, and I, again, put income and cash together as two buckets that make up your dry powder, and you can look at that dollar number, not so much the percentage, but the dollar number, and start equating how much money you're going to need every year in retirement from your portfolio. So above and beyond Social Security or any sort of pension you might have. You can figure what that annual number is. I think it's really helpful to look at your total dry powder, again, the income and the cash bucket together, and say, if I need $20,000 a year for my portfolio, and I've got $100,000 in the growth plus the cash bucket, well, that means I have five years of dry powder, five years of spending money. How does that help you psychologically? Well, market downturns don't typically last five years. So if you can look at your overall portfolio, again, particularly when you get into retirement, and look at those two buckets together as your dry powder, know that, hey, I have five, seven, eight, 10 years worth of dry powder. It really helps you ride through market storms and market corrections. The other huge piece around income investing, and I went over this example when it comes to just dividends, but now think of all these different asset classes kicking out a little bit of income every single month, quarter, or year. Well, now you don't just have stocks paying you. 
You have stocks and bonds and alternative income, all paying you collectively, almost like you have this giant army of investment soldiers, and each one of them is contributing little by little to your overall income. That's the kind of income diversification that gives me great peace of mind. And I think it should help you as well as you start thinking about your overall investments as an overall multi-asset class income-producing machine. So I know income investing is a lot to think about. This is something that our team of over 20 folks on our investment committee think about it every day. So if you'd like help with income investing and maybe either tuning up your own investment income engine or maybe transitioning to income investing, we're here to help. We'd love to talk to you about it. And you can find our team through westmoss.com. We literally do this every single day and we'd be happy to help. Hey y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.